1: Hi, this is Dr. Scott Hahn, and you're listening to Joseph Warren with Broken Catholic. You're going to enjoy everything you hear.
0: Today, our featured guest is Dr. Scott Hahn. He is the Father Michael Scanlon Professor of Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization at the Franciscan University of Steubenville, Ohio. He is the founder and president of the St. Paul Center, an apostolate dedicated to teaching Catholics to read scripture from the heart of the church. Dr. Hahn has been married to Kimberly for 42 years. They have six kids and 21 grandchildren. They also have one son ordained to the Diocese of Steubenville, uh, Father Jeremiah Hahn. Congratulations on that. Uh, as the author and editor of over 40 popular uh, and academic books, Dr. Hahn's works include best-selling titles like *Rome, Sweet Home, The Lamb's Supper, and Hail Holy Queen. His most recent releases are titled hope to die and holy is his name. The transforming power of God's holiness in scripture, now now available at stpaulcenter.com. That's stpaulcenter.com. This will be the subject, uh, BC Nation of today's conversation with Dr. Han. We're going to unpack holiness. What does it mean? How has God revealed holiness to his people all throughout the Bible? And most importantly, once we define it and understand it, how do you apply it to your life? How do you apply it to your struggles? How do you apply it in your relationships? How do you apply it to suffering and pain that we all deal with in this human condition we're experiencing right now? So we're gonna get into all of that. So get your pen and paper out. Dr. Han is the leading subject matter expert in this area and many other areas of biblical theology. So we're honored to have you on the show, Dr. Hahn. Welcome to Broken Catholic. Go ahead and just take a minute and fill in any gaps in that intro, would you?
1: Well, first of all, thank you for the invitation and this uh, hospitality. It's great to be with you. Uh, It's great to be with you just about a month after we were together at the Gala Banquet for the St. Paul Center in Orlando, Florida, just last month. So you bring up the subject of holiness because that is the uh, subject of my new book, Holy is His Name. But it's also been the principal focus of my life's pursuit for over 50 years, because it was just a little more than 50 years ago that I had a profound conversion, not only as a teenager, but as a juvenile delinquent who was spending far too much time in the Allegheny County juvenile court system. And I just narrowly escaped being sentenced to Warrendale for six months, where Mm. our next-door neighbor had hung himself after being gang-raped. It was the last place on the planet I ever wanted to go. So I was in search of something. And I found Christ. I mean, truly, he found me. But I began to read the Bible, and I began to attend a Bible study. But I also happened to discover this young, up-and-coming, dynamic biblical scholar and theologian by the name of Dr. R.C. Sproul. And uh, I was living in western Pennsylvania, in Pittsburgh, and he was less than an hour away. And he was working on a series of talks uh, that became chapters of a book that was published years later called The Holiness of God. And so when I heard him, I heard something that was different, something substantive, something that was lofty and yet life-changing. Up until that conversion, for me, religion was irrelevant. Uh, we didn't go to church, I don't think, three times a year. Uh, typical mainline nominal Protestants. And when I did go, it just seemed to be a kind of uh, milk toast thing that didn't really relate to life. But when I listened to Sproul, we would go down once a week, typically on Mondays. My youth pastor would drive me. And I think I was the only high school kid in that bunch, maybe 50 people or so. But I remember him saying something like this. You are not what you think you are, but what you think you are. And so this idea that if you can change the way people think, it isn't just lofty speculation or merely the theoretical. You really can change the way they live, the way they do everything, the way they comb their hair and tie their shoes. And it was all about God, because in the early 70s, we were kind of getting over a hippie hangover of the uh, Woodstock days and the Beatles, you know, all you need is love, love, love. But it was spelled L-U-V. It was saccharine. It was counterfeit. It was so superficial as to be artificial. And so I was looking for something more than just God is love. And I found it when Sproul pointed out That both in the Old Testament and the New, the only time you hear God described in one term three times is in Isaiah 6, God is holy, holy, holy. And in Revelation 4, where the angels and the saints are singing, Holy, holy, holy. What is holiness? Well, he talked about holiness in a way that I'll never forget, because first of all, he looked at Isaiah's vision, but also his response, woe is me, I am doomed to die. Oh, come on, Isaiah, get over yourself. No, when you confront the holiness of God, you are terrified. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you might also be mesmerized. And so what Sprole pointed out, and by the way, I just want to say, God rest his soul. I was so grateful for the formation of this mentor. And, you know, even now, even though I'm now a Catholic, I think in so many ways, I am more grateful for the formation I received from this great evangelical reformed thinker than on the day I was ordained a Presbyterian minister. I am just thankful to God and thankful to him for the friendship that we established and maintained over the years. But this idea of holiness, he pointed to Rudolf Otto who had published a book in German back in 1917, Das Heilige on the idea of holiness. It was published in English translation by Oxford university and Otto describes the realm of the numinous, the sacred. And for me as a teenager, that was non-existent, or that was irrelevant until you realize there is a God. He's the source of all of our lives. He is the center of the universe, and he's the goal for everything. You know, as Paul reminded the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians four three, this is the will of God for you. What? Wait for it. You know, what college do I go to? You know, who should I marry? What should my major? What is my career? You know, what is the will of God? Paul simplified it. He said, this is the will of God for you, namely your holiness. And then he added, and that you refrain from sexual immorality in the Greek porneia. And even in the seventies, young adolescents like me could do the math and figure out what that really meant. <laughs> so holiness is the, is the reason why we exist. To become a saint is the only thing for which we were made but you alone are holy. That's what we heard in scripture. The more you study the old and the new, you discover that holiness is not just, you know, what God has that terrifies us. It's who God is from all eternity. He's the Holy Trinity. The father, the son, and the Holy Spirit is the bond of their love. And so divine love is so much more demanding. It's more beautiful, but it requires us to recognize that on the cross, we see holiness. We don't see Jesus losing his life. We see him laying his life down as a gift of holiness and love. So I'm basically scrambled. I mean, my my brains felt like scrambled eggs. It's like, how do you even begin to sort all of this stuff out, especially when you're in high school, especially when all of your friends have abandoned you because you've abandoned certain things that all of you used to do. And so I set out on this path to read scripture and not just to be overly dependent upon one thinker like Dr. Sproul, but the idea that holiness is proper to God. It isn't love, love, love. It isn't mercy, mercy, mercy. And so he is loving. He is merciful. He is powerful. He is intelligent. But all of this is holy. It's a holy love. It's a holy mercy. It's a holy justice. So what is holiness? Holiness. Well, sprawl pointed to Otto's description that it is the mysterium tremendum et fascinans. That is, it's a mystery, and it causes us to tremble, and yet it, it captures our imagination. It fascinates us. Okay, well, that isn't really holiness. That's our response to holiness. Mm-hmm. So what is holiness? Well, back then, we generally confused holiness with righteousness, as though those were the same things. And certainly, they're united. Certainly, they're inseparably connected. But I discovered reading scripture that they are profoundly distinct. So, righteousness is the province of the king in the palace. He administers mishpat, okay, justice, judgment. On the other hand, holiness is the province of the priest in the temple who enters the presence of God. And so you don't want to confuse them, you don't want to oppose them, you unite holiness with righteousness, but only by subordinating justice to sanctity, and by subordinating our relationships and all of our activities to God and to God alone, for he alone is holy, and he's holy, holy, holy. Okay, so you see, for example, in Isaiah 6, that famous vision of the Sanctus, the seraphim are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, and Isaiah is just quaking in his, in his sandals. And what is going on there? Well, it tells us that it was in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his glory filled the temple, and the seraphim are crying out, holy, holy, holy. The ground, the foundations are shaking. And Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people who are unclean. What does that even mean? Well, in the year that king Uzziah died, he was reigning as Davidic king for almost 50 years, and he was making Israel great again. <laughs> you might say he was so successful that he ended up being puffed up with pride, and his hubris led him to do something stupid one day. As the king administering justice, he decided to take a stroll into the temple. Well, that's fine, as long as he's in the realm where the lay people are, but he took a stroll on into the holy place. And then he's approaching the holy of holies, and the priests are warning him, don't do that. Don't go there. And as he goes closer and closer, completely out of bounds, suddenly the priests see it, and he feels it. There's leprosy that just kind of came out of nowhere on his forehead. We read about this in 2 Chronicles 26, and what the priest had on his his forehead, holy to the Lord. This guy, who was this righteous king, but not a holy priest, had leprosy. They dragged him out. But they didn't just put him back into the palace. They kind of created a makeshift leper colony because he died in those remaining months and years. He was unclean, and he represented the people who were all unclean. And Isaiah identified himself with the people who blurred the boundaries and forgotten about the all-surpassing primacy of God's holiness. Get that right, and everything else will fall in place. You get that wrong, and nothing else will fit. Even if you appear to be successful, it's basically, you know, just a a broken life that is fragmented. And so so, if I could
0: jump in right here, Dr. Hahn, clarifying question. So is holiness almost a wall between humanity and God that is unattainable for us sinners?
1: That's right. I mean, if God alone is holy, then God alone hallows us. If he is sanctus, sanctus, sanctus then he is the only one who can sanctify us. And that is why he made us. He made us to work for six days. But remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It's the only time holiness occurs in the Ten Commandments, and there it occurs twice. So the first three commandments that we keep are all about God, loving him above all, calling upon his name but not in vain, and remembering the Sabbath day, and not just isolated as individuals, but your sons, your daughters, your manservants, your maidservants, even the sojourners, This is devoting your whole life through prayer, through worship, through sacrifice, through priesthood, through temple, to the holy God who dwells there in the holy of holies. And I finally found a definition. After looking in dictionaries and encyclopedias and scholars, the catechism, of all places, gave me what I'd been looking for for many years. In paragraph 2809, we read, The holiness of God is the inaccessible center of his eternal mystery. Well, wait a minute. What does that mean? Well, inaccessible is sort of like the holy of holies. It's Mm -hmm. off limits even to the high priest, except on the day of atonement. And so the inaccessible center of God's holiness in the Old Testament was off limits. But this is where I discovered that the hinge of human history, the hinge of salvation history turns on the coming of Christ, the incarnation. When the Son of God became the Son of Man, he enabled humans to become partakers of what? The divine nature. You've got to be kidding. Second Peter 1.4, we have been made partakers of the divine nature. So God had to show us what we couldn't do for ourselves. We could become good citizens, good students, good scholars, but we can't make ourselves good saints. We can't make ourselves saints in any case. So becoming holy is not primarily about getting bigger and better and smarter and stronger. It's about becoming smaller.
0: Mm.
1: It's about becoming closer. It's about becoming quiet. And not thinking about the Sabbath as a waste of time and a lack of productivity. No, the time we spend in the presence of God, allowing Him to do for us precisely what we can't do for ourselves, that tops everything. So you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength so that He can love you back? And then you love your neighbor as yourself. Those two commandments are in Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. But the fact is, it's only when Christ fulfills the law
0: yeah.
1: in his coming, but especially in his suffering, death, and resurrection. I mean, it, we know this, but we've heard it so many times. I think we have invisible filters in our ears so that the the shock value of what is truly amazing no longer amazes us.
0: Mm. I think I, I agree with you, right? We've lost our awe and wonder of God's divinity, right? We almost see ourselves as equals or sometimes superior. Like God needs to serve us and we make him into our image and likeness rather than being transcendent into his image and likeness. I really like what you said about... You know, we cannot access the Holy of Holies, right? And as we saw in the Old Testament, there are consequences, right? When we uh, overstep our smallness, our humanity, and enter in without permission to a place that is only for God, the Holy of Holies. But then the hinge is Jesus, right? That linchpin you said, right? He's the linchpin. And, and, And I almost picture... And excuse my simplistic way of seeing things (laughs) in picture form. It helps me to understand things that are complex. But I almost see God the Father in this private, backstage, inaccessible uh, place, room. And Jesus is the doorman that walks us in and brings us to the Father. But we cannot enter in without him. And if we ever dare to, there are severe consequences to that. Is that an oversimplified way of of looking at holiness and and accessing, you know, uh, the holy of holies with God, but only doing it through Jesus? Or am I getting this all wrong?
1: That's not oversimplified. That's what I would call a bullseye. I mean laser beam precision. You simplify and then you strike at the heart of it, Joseph. I, I thank you for that because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I get a sense that uh, this exchange is moving from the head to the heart. You know, I am professionally and primarily a thinker. And so I have been pursuing the truth of Scripture for over 50 years. And back when I was a teenager and in my 20s, I had this love of the truth that would cause me to pursue it no matter what the cost. Mm-hmm. I ended up committing... Professional suicide as a Presbyterian pastor (laughs) 36 years ago when I entered the Catholic Church, you know, but it didn't matter because it was all about the truth. You know, what started off as a detective story ended up becoming more like a horror story when the thing that I'd rejected, and I wasn't just non Catholic, I was anti Catholic, you know, then suddenly you realize, you know, it made about as much sense back then as, you know, a right wing conservative Republican defecting to the Soviet Union, you know. But the truth of holiness is what grasped my heart. You know, and for three distinctive steps, I discovered not a detective story and not simply a uh, a horror story, but what turned out to be a romance, truly, uh, between Christ the bridegroom and the church as his bride. You know, the first step is to go back to the beginning. Genesis is 50 chapters long, but the word kadosh, holiness, only occurs once in genesis 2 verse 3 and that's when god has created the secular order in six days and then sanctified the seventh day he hallows it well what is that the sabbath and what is the sabbath the sign of the covenant so we're not simply employees in a contract with god the boss we are called to a covenant and all of my scholarship over the years has been focused on You know, that covenant is to contract what a wife is to a prostitute. I mean, they're not to be confused, you know. And so when you see that, you're like, okay, the seventh day, the Sabbath, the covenant, holiness. And then in the next chapter, you discover what happens to our first parents. They have what we call sanctifying grace. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. It wasn't simply air. It was the Holy Spirit they possessed until they basically forfeited that. By committing what 1 John 5.16 calls the sin unto death, the mortal sin. The same term in Greek that you find in Genesis 2.17. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. They didn't die physically, but they died spiritually. And that's not just the fall. That is a cosmic catastrophe, which Mm -hmm. explains why does holiness not occur anywhere else in the next 48 chapters of Genesis. And then Exodus comes along. It's only 40 chapters. And there's this explosion of holiness. Ninety-eight times in Exodus I discovered that the ground you stand on is holy, the tabernacle is holy, the vestments are holy, the sacrifices are holy, the feasts are holy. But above all, in the final chapter, you have the Ark of the Covenant. That's what made the Holy of Holies the inner sanctum. And what was in it? Well, the Word of God in stone as well as the manna. And so the Spirit comes down, And the glory of God overshadows the ark, and so it is consecrated. The fire consumes the sacrifices. And then I noticed that in Exodus, nobody is ever called holy. They're called to holiness. If you hear my voice and keep my covenant, then you'll be a holy nation. But they don't hear the voice. Moses does. They just hear thunder. They don't keep the covenant with the golden calf. They break it. So everything is holy except for Israel. And not a single Israelite, not even the high priest, is referred to as a saint. It took a Jewish rabbi, a friend of mine, Rabbi Joshua Berman, who pointed out in his book on the temple that in the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Bible, as he would call it, nobody's ever called a saint. Nobody. And he was obviously contrasting that with what he knew about the New Testament. And as I absorbed this and I thought about it, I discovered no, 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 you're wrong, Rabbi, because in Daniel 7, you actually have reference to the saints. And so in Daniel 7, the Son of Man comes back to the Father, the Ancient of Days, riding on the clouds of glory, and he's given this kingdom that is worldwide and everlasting. But then the next thing he does is turn around and give that kingdom to the saints of the Most High, who still have to endure and suffer, but they have inherited the saints of the Most High, this kingdom. And then I realized that actually that doesn't disprove what Berman said. That's the exception that proves the rule because yeah. obviously it hasn't happened yet.
0: That's Daniel's right. looking it's foreshadowing what, where we're being called by the Father, right? It's the incarnation
1: of the yeah. Son of God as the Son of Man. And after his death and resurrection, he ascends to the Father, pours out the Holy Spirit. The what? The Holy Spirit. But wait, the second step, it should have been so clear to me, but it was hiding in plain view. It was hiding. Because in Luke, you have the Holy Spirit shall come upon you and the power of the Most High will what? Overshadow Overshadow you. It's the same scarcely used Greek verb to describe how the Holy Spirit overshadowed the Ark of the Old Covenant, which contained the Word of God in stone and and the manna as well. Well, this makes Mary the Ark of the New Covenant because the power of the Most High overshadows her. The Holy Spirit comes to possess her. She is made to contain the Word of God made flesh, who is the bread of life and the new manna. And so this was like, okay, okay, the blessed Virgin Mary and the child who will be born to you shall be called holy. That ain't ever happened before. And so the second stage to recognize that the new Adam brought about a new Eve to bring about a new covenant to undo the damage of the old covenant, the first Adam and Eve, and to basically do what they should have done by going to the garden of Gethsemane and then the right tree The tree of life is what the early fathers called the crucifixion and so it's like all of the it's like i have to rethink everything and then the third and final stage was to recognize what again was obvious until what was hiding until you see it and that is after pentecost you have well actually after the resurrection in matthew 27 matthew records how all of the tombs of all of these saints of the old testament were opened and the people the saints were seen why? Because when he descended into Hades, he basically liberated the souls of the faithful departed from the Old Testament age, and he used them as exhibit A, proof positive, living signs that the resurrection was not just a, a you know, an individual experience, that the ascension was not a solo flight. He takes all of these faithful up to heaven so that in the Old Testament, the only occupants who populate heaven are angels, they're the ones who alone are singing holy, holy, holy in Isaiah 6. But in Revelation 4, you're hearing the angels sing holy, holy, holy along with these elders, along with the faithful from all of the tribes of Israel and the martyrs and all of these other people. And it's like, wait a minute. Jesus singularly just repopulated heaven. Yeah. They're not dead. They're more alive than we are. And they're praying for us in Revelation 6. And and, and it's like my... My heart was ignited, you know, did not a mm. heart burn within us as he opened the scriptures, but ultimately it was going to the holy sacrifice of the mass, discovering the holy Eucharist and discovering the other sacraments. These aren't rituals that we do to kind of get God to do what we want him to do. These are principally actions of God to do for us what we can't do for ourselves in order to make up for all we lack to make us what? Not just good citizens, but saints And nothing less. And so that three-stage journey, you know, ended up taking over 15 years. But the final destination was, for me, so worth it.
0: Beautiful, eloquent uh, summary of God revealing his elevation of humanity at least the plan, the roadmap uh, of his elevation of humanity into holiness, into what was only for him at one time. And now he's raising us up to this level, calling us to be holy. And Jesus is the pass-through that makes holiness attainable for humanity. The high
1: priest of a heavenly temple who pours out the holy spirit upon us to become living members of that temple members of his mystical body and it's like this stuff is too good to be true
0: it's too good to be true right it's like listen it's like going to your favorite concert with your favorite band and you know the doorman and he's giving you vip restricted access backstage to your heroes, right? But now take that and times it by a billion and you're going to see God, right? So Jesus opens up holiness and makes it attainable for a sinful people. My next question, is holiness, now that we have access to it through Jesus Christ, is holiness optional for us? Or is it a duty, a responsibility, an obligation that our lives be holy?
1: Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, if this is the only purpose for which we were made, and it takes a long time to discover that we can't, we can't do it for ourselves. Holiness is not a a do-it-yourself type of thing, uh, and so I'm thinking of uh, Hebrews twelve fourteen, strive for holiness. That is, it doesn't come as a result of our effort, but it doesn't come apart from our effort. So the Holy Spirit doesn't make us just simply passive recipients, like a vessel that just gets the liquid poured into it. No, we are active, but we are activated by the Holy Spirit to become saints. Strive for holiness, for without it, no one will see God. Wait, say that again, author of Hebrews. Yeah, without holiness, you're not going to see God. No one will.
0: This is where it could get a little controversial. And I was reading in your book, and right here, it kind of stuck out to me. And I'm like, ooh, this kind of language could cause a divide with the Protestants and the Catholics.
1: So if you
0: can, dive into that for us. Let me just
1: say two things. On the one hand, when I was an evangelical Protestant, Reformed, Calvinist, Presbyterian pastor, you know, I believed in the Word of God. I believed in the sovereignty of God, and I believed in the sinfulness of humans. And I still believe all those things. You know, um, but I just made a a few course adjustments, a few course corrections, and then I discovered that uh, in becoming a Catholic, I didn't cease to be an evangelical or a Bible Christian or a New Testament believer in the sovereignty of God and the Word of God and in my own weakness and sinfulness. I just discovered, in a certain sense, that uh, the good news is even better than we thought. That it isn't just God declaring us to be justified, God declaring us to be sanctified, like Luther described a big mound of dung covered with white snow. No, it's not something alien and extrinsic to us as far as God's concerned. And why? Because as a Calvinist, I did believe in the first of the five points of Calvinism, T in the tulip, which is total depravity. And I still would say, that we are totally incapable of doing anything on our own natural power to gain the supernatural grace of God. But on the other hand, I would also say, if God is that sovereign, all powerful, if God is the Father Almighty, then is my capacity to sin greater than his capacity to sanctify me?
0: Hmm.
1: No, he's Hmm. sovereign, but he's sovereign as a father. So he's not just declaring us to be his children, He is transforming us. And the power of the Holy Spirit is the sine qua non. It is without the Holy Spirit, nothing in the Catholic Church makes sense. Nothing about the sacraments. But once you profess, I believe in the Holy Spirit, then the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of who? Saints, not just upright citizens. The forgiveness of sins, but ultimately the life everlasting is not just about living forever. Eternal life is that life which is proper to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have natural, physical human life, but what we understand by grace, sovereign grace, is the fact that God is not just capable of becoming a man as a little infant in a manger, or as a victim upon the cross, or as a host in the paten on the altar. No, God is not just capable of transforming bread and wine into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. God is so sovereign that he can transform a self-worshiping wretch like me a sinner, into a saint, and nothing less. And God who began a good work is faithful to complete it, but not just on the other side, and also not just through our own striving. We have to strive, but the principal form of striving for holiness is to rest in his presence and say, Mm -hmm. I've done everything I could for six days, but now the seventh day. In the old covenant, the Sabbath came at the end of our work, but Christ came before any of us were born. So how fitting it is For that commandment to be fulfilled on the first day of the week not only the day that he was raised from the dead but in a certain sense it was the eighth day you know the symbol of circumcision in the old covenant and so the lord's day when we gather as family in the presence of the father to celebrate the gift of the firstborn among many brothers and sisters to receive the holy spirit to renew our covenant again this is almost i mean It's more fantastic than we allow ourselves to believe. To outsiders, it's going to look like fantasy. You know, and we profess these articles of faith in the creed, but it's sort of, I can't help but wonder if our guardian angel doesn't hear it sounding like, you know, Pollywanna cracker coming from the mouth of a parrot. We profess, but we don't ponder. And when we ponder it, again, it's almost too good to be true. It's amazing how unamazed we are. And yet this is the faith in its fullness. When i became a catholic i didn't become an ex-evangelical i became extremely evangelical you know and more Mm -hmm. grateful for my protestant formation than i was as i said when i was ordained a presbyterian
0: pastor it's beautiful i'm gonna try to clarify something here and again forgive my oversimplification of trying to understand a very complex subject matter right so i asked you is holiness optional or is it our duty and responsibility and you Pretty much answered, I heard, well, how could it not be our duty and responsibility if this is the aim of God for his people, is to raise us up into holiness, right? So it is definitely our duty, our uh, obligation, and our life's work should be pointed towards that aim. So then I also heard, and here's my clarifying question, two things are required. There are two ingredients to holiness. The first ingredient, is God's power, the Holy Spirit's, the power of the Holy Spirit. The second ingredient that's necessary is our participation. So we can't do it in our own power and strength, as you said, right? We can't attain holiness. So we need the Holy Spirit, God's power to do it, but the Holy Spirit needs our participation. And the two must become one and they must become married together. And when both are together, we can attain holiness. Did I get that correct or am I off base here?
1: You know, you keep saying you oversimplify things. Once again, I would call it a bullseye. You just split the previous arrow. <laughs> you know, it's fun uh, because we, we move from the theoretical to the practical and we move from Scott to Joseph. <laughs> you know, I'm reminded also uh, how to generalize the two points you just made. Because in the Council of Trent, responding to, you know, me as a Protestant, I discovered something that, you know, on the one hand, God calls us to be holy. And yet he knows that we can't make ourselves holy. And so Trent said, what we've got to do is everything we can do. That's That's the first step. We've got to work for six days. Why? Because the sacred is not opposed to the secular. The sacred is opposed to the sinful. And so the six days that constitute our secular job, this is sanctifying our work by offering it as sacrifice in the liturgy. But the first thing we have to do is everything we can do. But the second thing we have to do, and it's probably even more important than doing everything we have to do, is to acknowledge that if I accomplish everything I could possibly do for you, it still wouldn't add up. To laying hold or taking a claim to your holiness, to what is proper to you alone. You alone are holy. You alone can hallow us. So what form or expression does it take? You work for six days, and all of that can be sanctified, your labor, but only if you order to the seventh day. But in the Sabbath commandment, it's not talking about constructing churches, building altars, and then designing vestments and music and art. As awesome as all of those things are, we can end up in a subtle way worshiping the works of our hands mm-hmm. if we turn this notion of holiness into what we do for God. No, that's for six days. In the seventh day, it's prayer. It's entering his presence. It's a kind of sacrifice where what, mm-hmm. whereby we basically say we've done everything we can, and yet, as Luke tells us, we're still unprofitable servants. Why? Because I can't work my way into your family. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You have to work your way into my heart. So do everything that you can do, and then confess that everything you do is not capable of achieving or meriting heaven. It's only when you allow God to do what you can't do. And that is why when Jesus healed on the Sabbath in John 5, and they demanded an explanation, he didn't say, well because i i'm leaving town and i couldn't do it tomorrow you know or because i couldn't get here any earlier why did i heal on the sabbath because my father is working still god works as creator in 6 days but the work of the seventh day the work of the sabbath the work of the covenant is not just god creating new things it is god making all things new it is making all things his and so when jesus says my father's working still he said what he meant he meant what he said because through prayer through stillness through quiet god can father us and make us sons and daughters but did they get it no the clergy the hierarchy who were called to be holy we read in the next verse this is why they sought all the more to kill him because they not only broke the sabbath but claimed to god you know called god his father thus making himself equal to god and blasphemy in their eyes was worse than you know a sabbath violation But the two are so closely connected that I don't think most Catholics, when they hear that gospel, get it either, because we have this slave mentality whereby we we enter into a religious commitment more like servants than sons. It's more of a contract than a covenant. It's more of a checklist that we've got to do rather than a plea to God to do what we cannot do for ourselves. And, And Jesus' humanity had to die on the sixth day. Friday. It had to rest on the seventh day, Saturday, in order to achieve this glorious sonship through the resurrection on the eighth day. So just as circumcision became baptism, just as the Passover became the Eucharist, so the last day of the week, the Sabbath becomes the first day of the week, the day of resurrection, the day of new creation. Only when you profess a childlike faith in all the sacred mysteries that are taught by Christ through the power of the Spirit. In the church through the word of god do you realize this makes more sense than einstein could have ever devised if he had turned from science to theology
0: mm. all right i'm wrapping my little brain around this here okay. well i hope
1: it's also exploding too because
0: <laughs> it you know, is it right never
1: stops igniting my heart and my brain there's a light that goes on that's almost blinding but there's a fire that is kindled that is like This is what I was looking for back when I was 13, doing a lot of quite illegal.
0: I mean, just the subject matter of holiness is expansive to our minds, right? It's stretching us. It's it's growing and expanding. It is. It definitely is. So I found it very interesting. Uh, when you were talking about the six days of the week, we do our works. And we elevate those works. That's the key. We elevate those works, offer them up to God as sacrifices. Uh right, for his honor, for his glory, and he takes the secular things, the human things of our lives, and makes them sacred, right, he divinizes them with his power, right, That that's awesome, that's beautiful, because it gives purpose to our pain, to our sufferings, to our everyday mundane lives, and then on the seventh day, correct me if I got this off here, so the sixth day is we raise up lift up offer up our works but on the seventh day we rest from our works and we raise up ourselves
1: and we basically rest for the purpose of reminding ourselves and each other that we could work for 6000 days and still not accomplish yes. the only thing for which we were made earlier this morning i was reading an article by a uh, old testament scholar from the netherlands uh, he's protestant he's in charge of this Bible Institute in the Netherlands, uh, Matthias de Jong. And he was pointing out that the Genesis account has some similarities with all of the other pagan creation myths. But the one thing they all lack that the Genesis account has is this, that the creation accounts in all of the other pagan religions have royal dominion and power as the goal Mm -hmm. for the gods as well as for humans who want to attain power and domination as kings, Whereas Genesis alone has the holiness of God entering into a covenant relationship and the holiness which is mediated by Adam as a priest. So if you look at Genesis 1, creation in six days is ordered a consecration on the seventh day. Well, the first person to ever be called a son of God in the Old Testament was Solomon. He built the temple, but he crashed. He, he broke all of the records for constructing temples in the ancient world. He did it in seven years. In order to consecrate it the seventh month in the seventh feast of the seventh month which lasted seven days the feast of tabernacles so on the seventh day of the seventh feast in the seventh month of the seventh year the son of god is imaging the father by creating this realm of holiness which he has constructed for the priests to inhabit and so only when we subordinate all of our labor but as you just said the mundane sweeping the floor, cleaning up after kitchen. Jesus, becoming the son of man, made his bed. You know, he latched his sandals. He helped them get ready for dinner, helped clean up, morning prayer, evening prayer, you know, walking to work, the hammer, all of the things that he did with his father, St. Joseph, sanctifying all of this mundane, common labor, precisely by ordering it to the only thing that represents our goal. Our finish line, which is sanctity, becoming a saint. So we distinguish righteousness from holiness, our labor from the liturgy, the secular from the sacred, only to unite them. And you discover that by doing that, you subordinate the lesser to the greater, but you then end up investing marriage and family life, human sexuality in the marriage covenant, but Mm -hmm. also raising the kids, the infants, the toddlers, the rebellious adolescents, all of the effort that we put in, you know, 24-7 is the stuff of sanctity. They're the bricks that will form the temple of our own lives that will make us truly saints, in spite of our sin, in spite of our weakness, in spite of our pride especially, but it's the pride that blinds us from recognizing we need God to work in me holiness more than I need my next breath or my next meal.
0: And when we combine the lesser and the greater, the miracle that God does is that he raises up the lesser to the greater. That's right. The humans
1: become partakers of divinity. That's why the central part of this book is to show that salvation in the Christian tradition, in the Catholic faith, is not mere forgiveness. It's not just being pardoned. It's not just being being declared innocent. It's not even just being healed of the effects of sin in terms of physical ailments and illness and the spiritual disorder. It's about divinization. It's about you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. You were made partakers of the divine nature. You know, behold, we are called children of God, 1 John 3, for so we are. Only when when the divine comes down to the human can the human nature be elevated to be made partakers of the divine nature. And again, this should blow our minds because this is not only what our hearts have been longing for. This is true science remember that in the Middle Ages, theology was not just like artsy. No, it was the queen of the sciences. It was the highest science because it was the only means by which the the humanities, the social sciences, the hard natural sciences could be coordinated. So this is not like check your intellect at the door, but it is intellect bow before the mystery, which you can't demonstrate, which you'll never exhaustively understand. But if you prostrate your mind before the mystery... You're going to stand up not enslaved, you're going to stand up liberated and empowered by the Holy Spirit because you can reason far more reasonably in the light of faith with the power of the Holy Spirit than you can reason apart from faith as some kind of secular scientist. Well said.
0: I disagree I I, with nothing you just said there.
1: Well, I don't feel strongly about any of these things, but we had to fill the time, right Joseph?
0: <laughs> <laughs> we did, we did. We're just like, you know, twiddling our thumbs here. How is suffering in our everyday lives and human condition. How is suffering and holiness? How are suffering and holiness connected?
1: Boy, that is the sixty-four thousand dollar question. You know, because on the one hand, Jesus suffered on the cross and he died and he was buried and all of the rest. On the other hand, what we have to see is that suffering by itself doesn't save us save us. You know, if Jesus had just kind of pulled out a hammer, started banging away at his left hand, that kind of pain would not have purchased souls. So what is it that makes Christ's suffering redemptive? Well, it's his love. On the other hand, love by itself can be warm, fuzzy feelings and sort of vain sentimentality. What is it that proves that love is genuine? What is it that perfects love and makes it even more genuine? What is it that purifies love so that it's not just self-love mixed with love of another? You know, like a teenager, oh, I love you. In the backseat of a car in a drive-in theater, she's got to ask herself, does he love me or will he love me? The way I make him feel, which is not the same as true love. So what is it that makes love true? Suffering. Suffering Mm -hmm. is what transforms love into sacrifice. And I would say love is what transforms suffering into, well, pain becomes passion, the passion of love, not just the passion of enduring this humiliating and disgraceful, torturous death. He wasn't losing his life on Calvary. In order to see that, you've got to back up and see how he institutes the Holy Eucharist as the Passover, the new covenant. And as a result, I mean, if the Eucharist is just a meal, then Calvary would just be an execution. That was the great discovery of all times for me, because if you told people in the first century, what all Christians profess in the 21st century, that Jesus' death on the cross is a sacrifice, they'd say, no way. Sacrifices only take place in the Old Testament in the Jerusalem temple on an altar with a Levite. He's outside the walls, far from the temple where there are noble altars. How does Paul say, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed? By looking at Good Friday in the light of Holy Thursday, by instituting the Eucharist as the Passover, the new covenant. The Passover was not primarily a meal. It was the sacrifice of a lamb. If that's true in the old, it's even truer in the new, where the lamb of God is laying down his life. So he's not losing his life on Friday if he made his life a gift by instituting the Eucharist. He is not the victim of Roman violence and injustice. At Calvary, he's the victim of divine love and mercy in instituting the Eucharist where the sacrifice is initiated. Then you can see where the execution represents the sacrifice being consummated. You can't understand either one without the other. The upper room illuminates the mystery of Calvary, and Calvary shows that the institution narrative is more than rhetoric. It's more than ritual. And then Easter Sunday, transforms that sacrifice into the blessed sacrament for us. So that Jesus' suffering redeems us, but the Holy Spirit renders our suffering, what? Redemptive? You've got to be kidding. Colossians one twenty four: I rejoice in my sufferings for his sake. I make up what is lacking in his sufferings for the sake of his body, that is the church. Stop everything, Paul. You can't be serious. Totally serious. Suffering was not just redemptive back then and there for him. He made it through participation. You use that key word, Joseph. We are in Christ, not just nominally, but actually we participate through the Spirit in his own body so that what he did through suffering and love presents your bodies as a living sacrifice so that a hangnail, a stubbed toe, COVID, whatever we have, we can, through prayer, turn pain into passion. Suffering becomes sacrifice, accepting the will of God out of trust and love. As St. Therese said, God gives me whatever I want because I want whatever he gives. And she gave it back to him, and so should we.
0: Hmm. You know, this law of duality that we see in God's creation, it's undeniable. I mean, it's in nature, in our physical universe. But then we see it in the spiritual realm as well. Right. where. the two need each other, that's even the, in marriage, the that's two, that's two become one flesh, that's right? That's and that's and so many of us, I think we get it wrong in multiple areas of our life, whenever we look at one extreme and we make it in conflict with the other, rather right. than find where do these two come together? Where's the middle, right? Yeah. How do these unite and where's the power when we bring them together like this, right? So we, it, I think it's unreasonable Uh, to argue against the duality that God's put everywhere around us.
1: What do you you think? You just nailed it again.
0: I'm not sure you realize how
1: important that statement is because the relationship between human nature and divine nature, nature and grace, the relationship between the old covenant and the new, between creation and the new creation, where he doesn't just make new things, he makes all things new. You know, in the second century, it was just too much. And so the principal heresy was Gnosticism. And what characterized all of the different Gnostic groups was dualism. Because a duality that you distinguish two things and then you divide them and then you oppose them leads to dualism. And that's where human nature goes in its own proud blindness. And so it's a duality in unity. It's where the two become one. Mm. But it isn't like you became me. No, and I don't become you. It isn't a kind of competition. No, the two become one. And when Kimberly and I experienced the covenant of marriage, and just parenthetically, in Hebrew, the term for marriage, kidoshin, is actually the nom- you, you turn the adjective holy into a noun. You're set apart by God for being the channel of God's life and grace to each other. But when the two become one, we're so different. I mean, we just think differently. We, we just act differently. We pray differently. But when the two became one, the one was so real, Joseph, that we had to come up with a name nine months later for our firstborn, Michael, because he was the incarnation of our oneness. The two became one, and in the process, we became three in one. What is that? Mm-hmm. A triunity. There and how go. is that working? Well,
0: that's the family of God right there. Yeah.
1: The Holy Father, the Holy Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is love beyond limits.
0: Wow powerful powerful what have we not spoken about on the subject of holiness that you really want to convey to my audience right now and I ask you do the best you can to bring it from a theological high level heady uh, place into the practical uh, you know areas of their lives what are we what are we missing here what do we want to say Let's because we want it. to put this into action don't we
1: Yeah, exactly. Let's build on what I've already said, but let's also build on the common ground we share, because we share two sacraments in common, not fully, but truly understand baptism as one sacrament, and the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist as the other one. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.11, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Now, that seems out of order when I was a Protestant, but what if Baptism is not just washing a stain away, but rebirthing, regenerating. So you're sanctified, you're made a saint. So even though you live in immoral Corinth, Paul calls the Corinthian believers saints. He's not just calling them the holiness, he's calling them saints because what the Holy Spirit has done through baptism, you are justified. On the other hand, we have the Holy Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it. Once again, if that's a meal, then Calvary's an execution. But if that's a meal, it's not even a snack you know what kind of meal is that well what i would say is that there is a mystery but there is a reality a real presence and the more i opened my heart and my mind to the word of god the more i discovered why it was that for the first thousand years there was nothing but unanimity and agreement about this and then i would point to the other five sacraments and how they correspond by analogy according to scripture and saint thomas aquinas my favorite theologian you have birth But you also have not just infancy when you're born, you also have maturity. But then, after you mature as a a pre adolescent, then as a teenager, you get ready for your own calling. And so, the sacrament of baptism brings about rebirth. Confirmation perfects that life. So, you're not just a child, you're now an apostle. You can go out and make other children of God by bearing witness and suffering. But then holy orders and holy matrimony represent the vocation to not only become a saint, but also to help other people make saints, become saints, your own children, your neighbors, your parishioners, if you're a priest, as my son, Father Jeremiah is. But I am no less proud of my other kids. You know, Dr. Michael Hahn is a scripture professor at the seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland, Mount St. Mary's, doctorate from Notre Dame. I used to be his teacher. Now he has become mine but i mean in the mm. process of living these sacraments the sacraments don't make holiness easy they make it possible it's not automatic it's not robotic it's not like a car going through car wash in neutral but it it engages us it liberates us and it also heals us and so we need the healing that comes through confession what i call the medicine of mercy we also need the healing that will lead us from the passage from this mortal life into the immortal glory where we await our resurrected bodies and everybody else's as well. So you've got penance, confession, reconciliation, as well as extreme unction. And and so the sacraments have been reduced to ritualism, and not just by Protestants who misperceive, but by Catholics, and not just cradle Catholics, but by converts like me. I mean, it gets to be so ordinary. I can't tell you how many times I'm so distracted that the sacraments are just sort of like, oh yeah, he pronounced the words of consecration, and I was thinking of something else how much we take grace for granted. You know, Lord, forgive us and help us to make up for lost time.
0: I'll tell you, man. Thanks for bringing that, uh, you know, just vulnerability from your own life. My wife and I were just discussing this yesterday, how on Sunday, we are so tempted at communion, after we receive who we profess to be Jesus himself. If we open our eyes, we are tempted to judge every single human being that's going up based on how they're dressed, how they receive, you name it. And literally it's an occasion for sin if our eyes are open right right after communion. So we're like, oh shoot, I gotta close my eyes because I am literally judging all of humanity right now. And I'm just like, how is that even a thing when I truly believe this is God and I just received him?
1: Right, and for me, when I walked into the studio, To have this conversation with you joseph the lord kind of tapped me on the shoulder and said by the way scott i'm still more interested in sanctifying you than in using you to sanctify all of these viewers so don't forget that i'm like okay lord you know i always do (laughs) that's why i'm reminding you (laughs) thanks
0: for the reminder you know it's so easy i might be impressed yeah the more we learn in our heads it's so easy to fall into spiritual pride you know, in this self-righteousness and then looking at others in this condescending way. The Pharisees look down upon others like, right, God, thank you that I'm not like them. Right. And it, it's just like, man, we all get caught up in it. It's such a temptation. Thank you for, uh, you know, speaking with us today about holiness and really unpacking a very uh, complex complex, uh, by its nature, topic, because it is a characteristic of God, after all, right? right? So like our brains only can grasp at the full, whole, and complete definition of holiness, because it is part of God himself, our maker. But I think you did a very uh, good job of um, bringing it down (laughs) from heaven to earth (laughs) hey right back at us right the two of us we're needed we're needed and and god comes in the middle and he elevates our you know uh simple language um so we've been speaking with dr scott hahn bc nation um and uh, you if you're catholic you know him he's one of the top apologists in the world you know authors writers over 40 books uh if you're protestant well then he used to be one of you so you know be nice be nice right we're all one in this this side of eternity and we're all striving for the same destination and we all have the same father in heaven and we're all broken and we all need him right so like let's stop fighting each other let's learn from each other and let's move together as one with jesus private access vip access Into the Holy of Holies with the Father for all of eternity. Like, that's the call, people. That's the call. Are you going to answer it? Or are you going to say, oh, it's not for me. God can't heal me. Look, my life's too broken. My mess, my darkness. Like, well, then you don't actually believe in the God that you say you believe in because you're making him small and finite. And you're making his power not enough to heal even you or your life. Or your sinfulness. I used to do that. It didn't work out very well for me. (laughs) And finally I had to come to grasp with, wait a second. If he's God, he can do anything. Why would I not believe that? He can even heal this mess that I created. Right? So I just kind of speak to your heart right now, BC Nation. If that's something you wrestle with. Um, You know, listen. There's a call here today. And Scott's a messenger. Hopefully I am as well. But God is calling you right where you sit right now, whether it be in your car or you're running and jogging or you're sitting at home. God is calling you to participate in his power, entering your life and raising you up to holiness in your everyday routine. Sit with that. That's the call. Now you have a a decision to make, and that's what we don't want to do. We we don't want to decide. We like to procrastinate or act like there is no decision. There's a decision. Will you participate in your call to holiness from God and let his power access your life? That means you have to go get quiet with him and sit with him. Stillness and surrender. Scott spoke about it earlier. Stillness and surrender. That's how you participate. You got to get still and quiet. Know that he's God. Listen. And then surrender to him in all the areas he points out to you in your life where you're not, where you're holding on to control. Scott, please take that little mess of language I just created and lift it up for us. What do you want to? summarize for us.
1: Well, I would be remiss and derelict in my duty if I didn't go back to what you said at the beginning, and that is, you know, all of this has been distilled and simplified in my newest book that just came out several days ago, entitled Holy is His Name, the Transforming Power of God's Holiness in Scripture. And by now, I think the title and the subtitle will make a lot more sense, but it's not just the transforming power of God's holiness in Scripture or the sacraments. It's here and now. It's daily life. And it's especially with my bride of 43 years, Kimberly, and our six kids, and my in-laws, and my neighbors, and my colleagues, and my students here at Franciscan University of Steubenville, it's really in the ordinary that the extraordinary enters. And I would say, just as God's strength is made perfect in weakness and gives us more with our less when we acknowledge how little we give him. Then I summarize again by saying, becoming holy is not about just making ourselves bigger and better. It's by growing smaller and closer to our Lord, like the beloved disciple reclining on his breast, like the Blessed Virgin Mary, or like John the Baptist, who is said to be the greatest born of woman, and yet the the, the least of the children of God are greater than John the Baptist. And so, no wonder he said... I must decrease so that he might increase. And let that be our prayer, but the prayer of our hearts and not just our lips.
0: Mm, praise God for that. Dr. Han. do you have just a few more minutes for us to do my favorite part of the show? I call it the hey. confession round. I'm yeah. going to ask you 10 quickfire questions. You'll have about three seconds to answer each. It's just for fun. Don't overthink yeah. it. It's like a game show without the prizes. overthink everything, Joseph. But don't, don't. I give you permission to not right now. Are you game? Yep, you in? All right, here we go. What's your favorite thing about God? Oh, being my father, Abba Father. Amen. What's your least favorite thing about God? My
1: weakness and sinfulness
0: and capacity to avert his gaze. That's deep. I believe we're all struggling with something at any given moment of our life. It's just part of Thoughts the human said. condition. Yeah, it's just part of the human condition. What are you currently challenged with right now, either professionally or personally?
1: Translating the truth of holiness into real life. And I mean, i it's sort of like when you start off, you think it's a race, but it's a, a sprint when you discover it's a marathon. I loved truth, but I've now discovered the truth of love and a love that is far more demanding than I thought it was when I started.
0: <laughs> I hear that. What are you most afraid of? Uh,
1: I mean, I i could say weakness, my own. But on the other hand, because I've got 21 grandkids, the increasing secularization and darkening of this woke culture and this cancel mentality that is just extraordinarily proud and stupid, self-destructive.
0: Mm. You know, my wife had a uh, revelation in a quiet time, and I, I, I peeked and took it from her journal. But God revealed something to her that the smallest of lights, the smallest flame, can be regenerated. Infinite amount of time to literally dissipate any amount of darkness, no matter how overwhelming it may be. That's so true. It's so true. And that's why we're called to be the light in the darkness. And it only takes one life, shining with God's power. Right.
1: You know, when I was working on this book, Holy Is His Name, Kimberly, who's so optimistic, came to me one morning and said, what is the world that we're giving our kids and grandkids? I said, Kimberly, it's not the world that we're giving them. That world is coming whether we want it or not, but it's the faith that we're giving them. That's it. And she's like, that was that candlelight. You know, that was like, the light actually shines brighter in the darkness.
0: Amen. What did you spend way too much time doing this past year? Worrying. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: Especially about our new St. Paul Center building that is now under construction. But, uh, you know, I said, if I had no fear of failure, what would I do? Mm -hmm. This building. But when I, said, when, I, when I went to our Lord, I said, I do have a fear of failure. And so uh, he's turned around and said, okay, if you're afraid of failure, what would you prefer to fail at? And I'm like, <laughs> the building. <laughs> I mean, if I'm going to fail, exactly. let's shoot the moon. Let's do something really big and beautiful. And if we fail, we'll still give you the glory.
0: Well said. What secret fear do you have about people?
1: Uh, oh, this is getting deep and dark. Um, if they knew me they would just not like me.
0: <laughs> well, I met you. I met your wife with my wife and and we like you. So
1: Yeah, she expects everyone to like her and they do. I expect everyone to kind of dislike me once they get close to me because I just realize how self-focused I am. And every once in a while I'm really confirmed in <laughs> <and> that <makes laughs> noise.
0: Well, I resonate with you, yeah. sir. Uh what do you wish you had learned sooner about God?
1: Uh how perfect love is the only logic that makes sense out of the law but makes sense out of all truth hmm. that uh, that he loves us beyond our wildest dreams and beyond our greatest abilities
0: hmm. so true what's a new habit you're going to create this year
1: well it's going to be loving jesus more than snack food at night <laughs> 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 and and so it's not a diet it really is an adventure it's an advent uh it's an advent journey that i want to begin all the way to christmas not to lose weight so much as to kind of lose this um uh this preference for my own comfort over and against just living for the love of god and depriving myself of the little things that distract me
0: Yeah, I get it. Hey, it's an opportunity for holiness right there, huh? Pick three words to describe who you are now, Scott. Um,
1: Husband, father, grandfather.
0: (laughs) Pick three words to describe who you were before you really understood this call to holiness in your own life.
1: (laughs) A self-worshiping wretch.
0: (laughs) Boom! Boom! And last question, Scott, if you could come back to life after you died, look your family and friends in the eye, it's hypothetical, of course, and give them only one piece of advice about God, about relationship with him, what would you say to them?
1: I would say what the Cappadocians said in the fourth century. I won't use the Latin phrase, but it's sober inebriation. That is, it's becoming intoxicated with God and his word in scripture, but above all, the word made flesh in the Eucharist. And that is, you're never going to look back and worry about wasting time getting to know God better. Get intoxicated. If we did that, we'd realize what a waste all the other intoxicants are.
0: So true, Scott. This is the part of the show as we wrap up here, uh, where you get to give my audience, BC Nation, a homework assignment for this week. What is one action they must take this week, uh, to grow (laughs) in holiness? To grow in holiness, I'm asking you, give them a homework assignment, man. It's up to them to make a decision if they will or not.
1: Well, I apologize in advance, but I gotta tell you, this book of mine, Holy is His Name what was on my heart for so many years and what is now finally, you know, something that could end up in your laps and you could read, and especially during Advent, I think that you'll see not only is holiness an adventure, again, it's so beautiful, it's so powerful, it's so meaningful, and yet it's just lying there dormant, covered with dust. And so, holy is his name, the transforming power of God's holiness in Scripture is in a certain sense what I feel God gave me and I hope it's a gift that he can give to you as well. So, the St. Paul Center, stpaulcenter.com. Better than Amazon. You can order it there. And I would really love your critical comments or the constructive remarks that if you do read this, let me know what difference, if any, it has made in your lives.
0: All right, BC Nation, you know where to go. You know what to get. You know what to do. Now choose. Make a decision. Make a decision. God's calling you to holiness. God wants to raise you up. Are you going to say no to God? That was just a little Catholic guilt for everyone. You're welcome. (laughs) All right. So uh, BC Nation, if you enjoyed this episode with Dr. Scott Hahn as much as I did, please go to Apple Podcasts, go to Stitcher.com, or go to BrokenCatholic.com, BrokenCatholic.com, and write a five-star review about Scott Hahn and how he showed up today for you. Write a five-star review, honest, an honest review about what God spoke to you in your life right now through this episode. Please go do that now. If we like your review, which I'm sure we're going to, uh, we will give you a live shout out on the show like I'm about to do for Love Handle. The fun stuff. The fun stuff. Thank you for your five-star review. We're a fantastic show, Broken Catholic. I like the way Joseph has a relaxed interview style. Also a solid articulate belief in the Catholic faith. He communicates well with his guests and imparts out faith amongst our everyday challenges. Bravo, Broken Catholic. Thank you, The Fun Stuff, uh, for your five-star review. Uh, BC Nation, go write yours now. Dr. Scott, anything else you want to say to the person well, listening today? As as I was,
1: thank you, Joseph, for... Uh, this hospitality and for the gift of our friendship that is just getting started. And I would say this, um, thanks for all of the good that you're doing and uh, keep up the great work.
0: Thank you. Scott Hahn, I wish you God's love, peace, and joy in your life, sir.
1: Thank you. God bless you.
0: Have you tried absolutely everything and nothing has worked? Have you tried therapy? Have you tried coaching? Have you tried counseling, Christian counseling? Nothing's worked for you your spouse you just want better communication when you wake up do you feel like you want to crawl under a rock in the morning time is your brain so scattered and foggy at this point that you're not following through with things you're not keeping your word in the matter you're letting people down maybe your own spouse or kids do you have way too much on your plate and you're getting more and more frustrated which is turning into anger are you battling addictions right now are you an amped up or frantic person with a lot of anxiety and you're off and on a bipolar and depression medicines? If any of these you connect with, then what I do is specifically this. I do not do therapy. I do not do counseling. Those are for people that want to talk about their problems or learn different ways to cope and manage their problems. I don't do that. Reach out to me if you want to get rid of your problems permanently. Like be done with the addiction. Be done with the medications. Be done with the escaping your life because you just feel so powerless in it. If you want those results and you want peace, it's what we all want. We're all chasing it. We had it as kids. We lost it. Life beat the crap out of us. If you want peace, that's what I sell. It's God's peace. So you can find that at josephwarren.net. You can schedule a call with me, complimentary. I'll contribute 30 minutes of my time into your life. We'll get clear on what you actually want. Then we'll see if we want to work together. And that's me interviewing you to see if you're ready. Are you ready to do what it takes? Some people try to come to me, but they're not ready to be coachable. They're not ready to get rid of the problems. Again, if you don't want to talk about your problems anymore and you've tried everything and nothing has worked and you want to permanently get rid of them, go to josephwarren.net and let's see if I'm your guy.